Welcome to Counter Stories, a show by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Halil Lee, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of this podcast. I'm Don Eubanks, uh, associate of Dendros Group and a uh, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I share today are solely my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church, Duluth, Minnesota. And we have a special guest joining us today. Uh, Kate, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. So, Hamitakiapi, Kate Bean, Imakiapie. Hello, my relatives. My name is Dr. Kate Bean. Uh, in Dakota, I'm known as Brings Them Home Woman, and I currently serve as Director of Native American Initiatives at the Minnesota Historical Society. But in two weeks, a little less than two weeks, I will be transitioning into leadership as the Executive Director of the Minnesota Museum of American Art in downtown St. Paul. Yay! <laughs> All right. Yo, yo, yo. Congratulations, Kate. When I heard that, I was like, we got to get her on the show. We know you more as a historian. Um, and so uh, how is the, the transition um, from historian to executive director of a museum um, going to be for you? Well, I'm really excited about it. You know, I, you know, my training is, is really as a museum professional, as a historian, but my, my passion really is in storytelling, um, uplifting, um, narratives and voices of people who've historically been marginalized and left out and, uh, working and engaging with community members. And so for me, it's, it's, it's not such a giant leap away from history. And in fact, I think all of history and, and the visual arts is really about storytelling and our self and community expression of who we are, uh, and, and our experiences and our beliefs and our worldviews and our perspectives. And so I am super excited. Um, you know, I, it's, it's a difficult time to be a public historian. That's, that's certainly true. Um, but for me, one of the things that I've really come to understand over the last few years in particular and, and, and dealing with difficult histories in particular has, is the role that both public art and the visual arts can play in helping to, to create a more empathetic society and helping to us to understand one, 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 one another in interesting ways. And so we can tell complex stories. We can, we can grapple over time, different time periods and across communities through art in really interesting ways. And so for me, it's a really exciting way of looking towards the future. You know, one of, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about this, you know, Largely because you know it's another uh, another person. I, f- I feel like we have another person on watch in the curation of the things that are supposed to represent us as a society. And so um, I'm I'm curious. You know, I, I know there's a lot of things that you're going to be doing as the executive director, but but part of me is is, is screaming, "Oh man, I I can't wait to see more native representation in this space." And so I'm wondering how that is factoring in as you transition to this role. You know, I think it's really interesting when, when I was hired, one of the, you know, during the hiring process, one of the questions that I was asked was about, you know, as an indigenous leader who has primarily worked amongst native communities in my career, 
um, you know, how, how might I represent, uh, more groups of people than just my own? And, and one of the, one of the responses I gave is that I really hope that none of us are only working for one community, you know, and what I'm really interested in is the bridges between communities and the ways in which we relate to one another and the larger level topics that, that can really bring us together and help us to understand one another. And really, again, it's about that empathy. It's about uplifting stories and narratives. And one of the things that I've learned in terms of, you know, engaging with Native people and Native tribes is that there are a lot of different ways to engage with people of color, with people who've been historically left out of the state narrative, um, with people who haven't had a voice at the table. Um, and there are, a, a, you know, there's a plethora of ways in which we can engage with people, whether it's with tribal nations or individuals or community members or neighborhoods. Um, and I think that when it really, what it really comes down to is being somebody that's willing to listen and being somebody that's willing to advocate for shared values and that is willing to stand up for what's right um, and, and really support one another. And I think that, um, you know, as an indigenous leader, I'm super excited to work with, a, a, you know, so many different community members. The Minnesota Museum of American Art was sort of like this grass started by this grassroots group of, of individuals who started as an art school in the late 18, 1880s. And it was started by people who were really interested in local community art, but at a time that didn't include most of us who are here today, you know? <laughs> and so when we look towards what is the, the future of Minnesota, you know, the ways in which the demographics are shifting, the ways in which we as indigenous people are, are returning home and, and, and coming into roles of leadership, IPOS leaders having a seat at the table and being key decision makers and not just in, in advisory roles. I think that it's an opportunity to indigenize the field and in indigenizing the field, that's something that is beneficial for all of us, not just one group of people. You know, I, I want to go a little further into that question. I'm glad that Anthony asked it in the way that he did and your response as well. And when I first uh, saw the press release that went out, you know, it brought me joy for many reasons, but one of the uh, thoughts that came to mind immediately is the name of the museum is Minnesota Museum of American Art. And, you know, society has... Come on, Luz. Come on, Luz. <laughs> society has really um, abused the term American, right? It It has really been subjective in how they define American. And it, it hasn't, for the most part, included us as BIPOC, included us as folks who have been here longer than, than they are, you know, willing to give us an understanding or credit, you know, I mean, a fair amount of the country was Mexico before, you know, the treaty was, was adopted. Uh, certainly the indigenous folks have been here for thousands of years and, and somehow our voices are, are not uh, included. Our brothers and sisters from the black community who've been enslaved. I mean, 
there there are so many contributions and our Asian brothers and sisters who have, you know, played a critical role in infrastructure, building infrastructure, literally of this country with railroads and things of that sort. But we're, our contributions are not seen in that way, nor is the art that is so rich in any one of the communities that I just uh, stated is often represented. And it's, it's been a very filtered and exclusionary way of not having our voices and our images and our cultures and our values, quite honestly, included. So when I think about that, you know, the first question that comes to my mind for you is what's your vision along those lines as a new leader coming into that, knowing that that's a big undertaking, uh, knowing that redefining the word American within the title of Minnesota Museum of American Art is going to be a big part of expectations that our collective BIPOC communities will have with your leadership. I will say, Luz, that I've actually worked with um, the M on several projects um, around Hmong elders um, and Hmong art and that sort of stuff. I feel like um, they, they've always been very well-intentioned white people, right? Um, they, have, uh, they have tried. Um, the founder of Hmong Museum, Mai Vang, is actually on staff there at the M. There, there have been times where they missed and, uh, and I've, I've reached out because I have a relationship and, and, and I've said, you know, you guys should have approached the community about doing this or that or what organizations are you partnering for this exhibit? Be, you know, it's around Native peoples. Like, you know, what, pe- what, what organizations are you talking with? And a lot of times they're just saying, well, we have a deadline and we can't, we can't do everything at one time. Um, so that's, you know, uh, hopefully that's something that's addressed, um, Kate. And, and the other thing is it's been very, it's a, it's a difficult spot for, um, a lot of people and, uh, being in, in downtown St. Paul and there's really not any parking right out front and, uh, there's not that foot traffic of people of color, um, that walk by. And I know there have been in the past some, uh, pushes and some initiatives to try to attract, um, you know, outside of the the white folks who live in the condos downtown. So ho- hopefully you'll bring that you'll bring uh, a little more to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I when I look at even the you know even the name Minnesota Museum of American Art, well, America colonized Minnesota, so those two things are not fundamentally the same. Um, as somebody with a degree in American studies, my PhD is in American studies, and, and I literally, you know, entered that field and was interested in that field because it was interdis- interdisciplinary. Um, and because I was trying to grapple with an understanding as an indigenous person with dual citizenship in this country, who saw myself as Dakota first, um, what did it mean for me to be American? Is that something I could even be proud of? Um, and coming from a family that, that fought to be able to, to have the right to vote, that fought to be included and yet had to fight against assimilation and had to fight to be able to remain indigenous was something that was very clear to me. You know, sovereignty, it, it is something that changes with, with, with every regime or administration that comes in, in terms of how, we, we define that term and think about it and how it plays out. 
But for me, you know, in terms of the Minnesota Museum of American Art, my own relationship with that museum um, was fairly awkward. The first time I was reached out to a number of years ago was to give feedback on a land acknowledgement, which to me was like a red flag of like, okay, I'm meeting you now because you want to do a land acknowledgement. <laughs> um, where was this relationship before and where is this going? Uh. Um and so for me, you know, honestly, when I, when I was asked to, to apply for the position, I, I, you know, at first I was, I was a little bit hesitant. And then I started looking into the organization, the history of the organization, and really looking at the ways in which it, they, they have really at their heart tried to engage with local communities, diverse communities, carve out this identity that's very separate, very different from the Walker, from Mia, from the Minnesota Historical Society, that is very sort of community focused. And for me, that's what's really exciting is the possibility of what this place should be. If this is really the Minnesota Museum of American Art, then it's one of those things where it's like, oh, that's what you want. We'll give you that. And it's it's exciting to really think about what that can and will be and should be um, as an opportunity to be a resource to support community voices and experiences. And, you know, in terms of art, for me as a Native person, you know, museums, this whole field thinking about art, thinking about how the ways in which my own people and our our items have been objectified, the way we've been archived, the way we've been, you know, put in collections in the basements of these places that historically we do not feel welcome and we are not, we were not welcomed. Um, disrupting that is what I'm really interested in doing. Bringing connection to community and the arts and ha having a better understanding of the way in which art is something different for different cultures. As a native person, art is purposeful. You know, art for us was and is and continues to be useful. We use elements of the buffalo. We use our creativity. It's a very, you know, it's a very tangible um part of of who we are it's not something to hang on a wall and keep away from other people it's something that's used on a daily basis and I think that for me the idea of looking at art in a different way as not being so exclusive um, and of seeing the ways in which an organization can be a resource to help elevate those community stories and again there's a beautiful new building at the Pioneer Endicott building um, that is going to be three times the size that it used to be in terms of the actual gallery spaces itself. But the heart of the organization has lasted throughout numerous spaces. It's not about a building. And so the idea for me is looking at how can we be a resource and support community organizations, um, you know, support programming in other spaces as well. And so it's not just about a building. It's not just about any one perspective of what art is. It's all about expanding on that. So, Dr. B, you, you, uh, you brought up many. I've been sitting here listening. There are, there are many different things that I've reacted to. And, and so please be patient because I'm going to take my time to go through them. The first, 
I think the first thing I reacted to, and only because I was in positions where I was asked uh, a similar type question uh, that you um, you talked about when first asked about your, your new position. And that was the fact that you come from uh, an indigenous background with an indigenous perspective. And the fact that this they actually asked if you would be capable of being able to uh, include others. And I bristled at that question because I was asked a similar type question when I became director of the chemical health division for the state of Minnesota. I was asked a very similar question and it bristled me at that time because I'm wondering how many of our white colleagues get asked that same question. They ask us, exactly, that was one. The other, the other was the, the land acknowledgement thing. You know, one of the, uh, I had the opportunity to facilitate a panel that you and uh, Mary Line and, I, and two, three other individuals were on. I think uh, that Maggie Lawrence and the, uh, yeah, and, and the Native Governance Center helped set up. And at that time, you know, I'd, I'd heard a lot about na- uh, land acknowledgements, but hadn't been much involved with any of that. So listening to you and the others was very educational. And I remember what you particularly were stressing in terms of of how land acknowledgements are usually put together by groups or organizations. Most of them tend to be hollow, right? No, no meat on the bone. And and um and you know, and so it's a it's a feel-good exercise for some of these organizations. But you also explained that, you know, please don't reach out to us to to draft it, to do this, to do that and the other. And I remember listening to that thinking, wow, you know, she's going right there. And then the next week, (laughs) Metropolitan (laughs) State University, the president and the uh, VP of uh, Equity and Inclusion drafted a statement. And guess who they sent it to to wordsmith it? (laughs) Exactly. That's a little bit of a double-edged sword, though, right? Because on on, on the one hand, you don't want to be, you know, the indigenous guy. On the other hand, if they drafted it and it was poorly drafted, then you're you're also. I I had this issue when I when I worked. It's not my, but it's not my problem. That's true. And so, so you know, but what I was getting at is, so they turned, even though they were there for that workshop they turned right around and did the very things that were being pointed out to them. Um, the other thing I want to mention is that I had the, the pleasure of, uh, of uh, meeting and working with your dad. Um, your dad was on the uh, American Indian Advisory Council while I was at Metropolitan State University the first four or five years that I was there. And, you know, your father is a fantastic individual. And I learned so much from him because he, you know, he was slightly ahead of me. And and um, and so the experiences and and the things that he's done, um, I just felt um, I wanted to mention and bring that up. So somewhere embedded in all that, Dr. Bean, is, um, you know, often when we when we find ourselves in these leadership roles it it just kind of bugs me that we are held to a slightly different standard and not only are we tap dancing for the individuals who brought us in 
But we also find ourselves tap dancing for BIPOC communities because we are in those positions. And the very questions we're asking you from those perspectives, I feel, puts this additional um, pressure on us to try to please everyone. And I was wondering how you felt about that. No, I I agree completely. And, you know, my, my dad... Papa Sid Bean, he is almost 80 years old and he is literally my number one advocate, supporter and mentor. And he's the person I call late at night to vent about things that are frustrating or to ask advice about how to deal with a situation. And honestly, anytime I'm, I'm dealing with something difficult, he, he will just laugh, you know, and be like, oh, it's your turn to deal with this now. So here, here's what I did. <laughs> Um, and I learned so much from him and I, I learned perspective from him, which is really, really important. And one of the things that I was raised with is, is this value of positivity, which is really hard to have. And, 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 and it's really important as Dakota people that we have this value of positivity because life is so hard and it's the hardest value to be able to, to continue to, to strive for and, and implement and, and uphold and I think that what I've learned is that there's a lot of benefit and in that value of positivity and looking at things in terms of being solution oriented, even if there isn't a solution, just instead of, you know, instead of giving up, instead of getting so frustrated that you just you can't do it anymore, um, being able to, to, to think about, OK, what is the next step? What are we going to do about it? And for me... You know, I, you know, again, my dad was a community organizer, grassroots community organizer guy who taught me to walk towards the flames, <laughs> that if there is something going on, if there is a frustration, you know, if there is something difficult happening within the workplace, that's where you go or within your community, that's where you go. That's where help is needed. And so for me, you know, in terms of land acknowledgments, I think that Number one, it's a first step. You know, there, there's, it's an opportunity for organizations to self-reflect. Um, there's also things like institutional acknowledgements to look at, or some people have called them institutional genealogies that look at the, the history of the relationship between an organization and indigenous communities and other communities. And I think that that opportunity for self-reflection to really understand why are we in this place? How did we get here? is important to understand because there's that accountability piece and that taking responsibility piece that's so important. And I think that for me, for the Minnesota Museum of Air American Art, that's where it's really exciting because, you know, I'm the first one to, to not be afraid to say, hey, look, we've made mistakes or they've made mistakes, you know, and, and to, to understand that you have to have courage in order to move forward. And you have to recognize those, those mistakes. You have to take accountability for it. Um, but honestly, the fact that this organization was willing to hire, uh, not, I wouldn't say willing because I've earned my way, but, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. was interested in, in hiring an indigenous leader to, to really look at the future of the organization in a different way because they, they could have hired, you know, the same old, old white man you know, demographic that, that is leading a lot of our, our, our cultural organizations. And, and they wanted something different. And for me, I think that as an indigenous leader, 
I completely agree. I don't think other people get asked that same thing that we do in terms of, oh, well, you know, do you just work with Indian people? We, we had to work twice as hard in graduate school, you know, in order to, to earn my doctorate uh, and studying the history of my own people. I had to work 10 times as hard to prove my place and then, and whether I had bias or not. And I think that that is part of what makes us such good leaders because we come from groups of people that are highly resilient, that have overcome a lot, that are thri- continuing to thrive today. And we've seen what has been successful and we've seen what hasn't worked. I'm all about the future and the possibility and what can be moving from working around spaces where there are really difficult histories, um, which has been traumatic and difficult and important work. Dr. Bean, you said something earlier that just that floored me because I I had not um, had this articulated that way before me before. You were talking about, as in terms of bringing perspective in, um, you know, about um, in particular to, to Native art living. It's not, you know, making that distinction. It's, it's, it's in, in many communities, art is not a leisure thing up to, and I think you said to go, that goes up on a wall to be looked at, but it's something that, that we interact with. It's something that means something beyond leisure. And I think this is huge because I think back about all the symbols and the things in the artwork that I've grown up in in my own community space, and there are stories that live and are captured in them. There are are real functions, and not just ceremony for me growing up, but 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 in 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 life and in and in capturing what it, what it means to be in different places. And I think a lot of folks, you know, will think about art museums in the way of of leisure, where I go to take a look at something and not see. The import or be able to connect the importance of how that lives differently in different community spaces. I had never thought about it that way. You just schooled me on that, so so I want to give you your props for that. And I'm 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 just curious about some of the the ways in which you you see an exciting moment here to be able to 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 show that. And and I say that because I, I will I'll never forget being um with with some family members in Louisiana, and all of a sudden the ceremony breaks out. And there's prayers going up and people are singing and I'm starting to hear um, rhythms that I've that I studied and know are connected to continental Africa and, and, and start to see this whole thing move around me. And then I became keenly aware of the images around and the stories that came around. And it was almost like the whole place came and lived and, and, and essence and being was being captured in art in a way that. I hadn't paid attention to before. And that's when I started to pay attention to the symbols and the in the in the art around things that some folks will put up as decoration and other folks put up to hold the ancestors in the room. And so I'm just curious how, you know, what are some of the exciting things that you have in your mind about how to how to move more of that to our our psyche? I think that something that I'm excited about is, you know, I'm really interested in cult in in um, community artists. Mm-hmm. Some, they don't see themselves as artists when they are. Mm. When I look at these items and think about the ways in which our communities are reconnecting to our cultural traditions and or either reconnecting or, or in some of our, in some of these cases, we haven't disconnected. We've, we've continued these traditions over the years. Um, you know, watching my husband butcher a buffalo, that, that it's, it's literally art to me. Mm. Um, and, and I learned through watching that. And 
learning about the process and the teachings. And there are just so many different elements about it that I am really excited to understand the ways in which we look at art differently in our communities and highlight the fact that it's not elitist, that it's something that is an everyday part of all of our lives and help to elevate the, the, um, the artists within our communities who aren't the ones who are applying for, you know, to be showcased in, in different shows. All of our communities have these traditions that, that we want to continue on. And, we, and those teachings, our young people need them. They want them. And so how do we support that? I love contemporary art. I love paintings. I love art that hangs on a wall. But that's not all of what art is. And I think that there's really interesting work happening in different communities that highlights the old um, merging with the new and doesn't keep us all in the past in terms of tradition and sees tradition as something that is continuing to grow and move forward um, and modernize. And I think that helping the public to understand the ways in which we do that within our own communities helps us to see each other better. Yeah, I'm just saying, just keep it 100. You have reignited um, me seeing visual arts museum space as a space that preserves and keeps culture in a way that I hadn't thought about before, like that I usually reserve for other museum spaces. So just you, you done got me excited about the, about going to the museum again. Well, I hope that you do come. And, I, you know, the museum itself, it's not up to any museum to to tell anybody's stories. What what the role of the museum is, is to be a resource to help communities so that they can tell their own stories. Mm. That's a that's that's such a powerful story, uh, not story, but point to make. When I was listening to you answer the last few questions, Dr. Bean, and from the start, I was thinking about access and what does access look like? And access looks like and 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 it can take just a whole host of iterations, right? It could uh, go on in terms of display and and being able to be included as an artist, it goes into content, as you had mentioned now a number of times, uh, and in terms of storytelling and traditions and keeping our cultures vibrant and alive as they are currently, as well as they've been in the past. But when we think about just the umbrella of all of this, what dawns on me and, and listening to you speak is, this is really about validating who we are, but also illustrating how we belong. And so much of what is done in um, the circles of diversity, equity, and inclusion is about inclusion, certainly, but so many institutions don't know, they struggle with how to incorporate inclusion. And they struggle with Sure, they can they can try with inclusion from a workforce standpoint, but not substantively in terms of their actual mission. And so when we think about, as you've answered the questions uh, that we've asked you today, how the element of belonging really is key because our folks can't feel that they belong anywhere at any time unless we see ourselves in that. And then on the flip side of that, of course, you know, the other benefit to all this is the issue of portraying our our cultures collectively, BIPOC in particular, 
from an asset-based perspective. You know, we are inundated on a daily basis with narratives about our communities, our BIPOC communities, stemming from a deficit-based analysis. And you have an incredible opportunity to just shift and pivot those mindsets of the general population, the dominant population in particular, uh, but also the media and the funding that comes with that, right? Challenging philanthropy, challenging the donors to step up and step into this space. Oftentimes our communities have different stories that we want to tell than what these institutions think we want to talk about, you know, and it's really important to listen to community. And when we engage with community, to really understand what engagement means. Um, when I first started working at the Minnesota Historical Society, I, I actually worked for, for Chris Taylor, Dr. Chris Taylor now, who um, was the chief inclusion officer for the state of Minnesota. And what he, you know, at the time I was working in his department, the Department of, Cl- of Inclusion and Community Engagement at the Minnesota Historical Society. And one of the things that I really learned when they did an evaluation of staff across the institution was the ways in which people really wanted, um, you know, they wanted to see diversity, inclusion, and equity across the organization. But number one, they didn't all have the same understanding or definition of what that means. And number two, they didn't know, some of the, the staff did not know how to implement that into their daily work lives. Like they literally did not know that it meant that they needed to shift and change the ways in which they answer the phone, the ways in which they open the door, the ways in which they talk to people, the ways in which they decide what gets exhibited and what doesn't, or who they, who is brought to the table to make those decisions. And so it's interesting, you know, to really think about within these efforts, the difference between um, wanting to see things change and changing the way you do things. We have to do it in order to stay relevant. People aren't going to continue to want to come to museums if, it, if the field continues in the ways in which it started as being this elitist, you know, white-walled, cold type of institution. We have to change the way that we do things. Dr. Bean, um, you know, listening to this discussion, it, I'm, I'm excited, but I'm also a little saddened because it, it brought back memories. Um, and I even hate to bring this up, but cause I, <laughs> I think Dr. Bean, you might not even been born or you're very young, but back when I was in high school, I was uh, fortunate enough to be a part of a group of of a native students from Minneapolis public schools that were um, brought in by the the uh, Walker Art Center um, to to act as tour guides for the first American Indian art form and tradition show that was touring the United States. This was back, oh my God, like 1970 or 71. And so I had the opportunity to work with um, local native artists uh, from uh, the Twin City, Ron Libertas and uh, George Morrison was part of this effort. And we learned then and with the things that we um, that were in this exhibit and part of it was at the Walker 
And at the time, they were finishing the IDS Center in downtown Minneapolis. So it hadn't been completed, but they had a part of the exhibit on the 13th floor. And what Morrison and, and Libertas taught us is that, you know, what we what is considered art was, in fact, you know, utilitarian tools. So, you know, spoons carved out of buffalo bones, um, our bandolier bags for the Ojibwe that carried our medicines and other things. Um, but it, they were they were utilities. They were things that we we used. Um, and I remember they brought someone up from the Southwest, Hopi. And this individual would be akin to um, what we would call a healer because this individual did a sand painting. And we were honored to be able to watch this individual do a sand painting. But those sand paintings are only done in conjunction of some sort of healing ceremony. That was the only reason they were constructed, put together, and um, was to heal somebody. And, um, and that has never left me. And the fact that it's almost 50 years later and we're still having this discussion um, is exciting but disheartening that we haven't moved, you know what I mean? We haven't moved that barometer that far. And, um, and so I'm so excited for you in this new position because I think it allows that barometer to be moved. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, I think it's, it's interesting because when you look at the history of Native art, and the, what most people know about Native art or think about Native art, most when I say most people, I, I guess that's a very generalized term in itself. But, um, you know, people who don't come from our communities um, and they don't they, they know about us in terms of tourists, tourism. Right. Or mm. or um, trinkets. Right. Or they'll learn about different things in school and they'll think about it as crafting just like they know our stories as legends. And there's these different interpretations of who we are as people. Artifacts. Artifacts, yeah. And what that does is it separates us from who we are. And it separates us from the realities of, of how we express ourselves and are in relationship with one another. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. There's also the reality of the ways in which some of our arts have changed over time, partly due to tourism, but also because our people change over time because we're human beings. And so there's, there's different elements about, of that that are really interesting and sometimes sad, um, sometimes exciting. And I think that there's so much to learn there. And, you know, in terms of, of how far have we come, for me, I think that I, I always go back to, to what I've learned from my dad and what I've learned from my grandparents and what I've learned from my great-grandparents. And when I've read my grandfather Charles Eastman's books and seen that he was literally grappling with some of the same institutional problems mm. and problems in government that we're dealing with today back in the 1920s um, or 1902 
um, that some of these things that he was talking about are the same things we're dealing with. It can get really depressing. And what I realized is that the ways in which we have moved forward, again, that value of positivity and realizing his life and his legacy made a difference. He made a mark. My dad has made a mark. You know, they have fought so hard to move that dial that they might not always see and you might not always see where the dial has moved, but my kids are going to see it and they're going to feel it. It's happening. It's slow, which is frustrating, but I feel like we're picking up the pace a bit. And I feel like things are changing at a faster pace in some regard. Part of it is these, these larger questions and these, these larger issues that, that we're still grappling with, we're always going to grapple with. Because it's, the, it's our lived reality. It makes me sad when we say things like, it's the same thing that, you know, people have been fighting for in the 60s. And I'm always just like, it really, it disheartens me. And so it's important for me to have people like lose in my life so that I don't get all down in the dumps about it and just be like, well, forget it then. Forget it. You know, and, and, um, I totally understand what you guys are saying. Like in, in, in the Hmong culture, um, you know, the, the story cloths that you see everywhere, that is not an, a, an ancient thing. We've always done textiles, but that was created much later. Um, and whenever I work on any Hmong art projects, they're like, oh, we want to see the cross-stitching and the batik. But like, I'm like, you know, there are Hmong artists now who don't do that. And they're still Hmong artists. They still, you know, illustrate our life, right? And things like that. So it's like, when does art, when is it considered art? Is it only when it kind of fits into what people already kind of know about your people, right? Um, and then I was, you know, I was trying to frame this question in a, in a way that doesn't sound mean. Um, and maybe I can't. <laughs> but like, what, what is the response that you've gotten, especially in, in, like from white people who are like, oh, great. Now all the art there is going to be indigenous art. Right. I got a problem with that, but go ahead. <laughs> so I haven't heard that yet. I, I imagine I imagine it's out there. Um, but believe me, I've heard far worse. Um, you know, I don't know if you're aware, a few months ago, Catherine Kirsten did a whole op-ed um, against me and my work at the Minnesota Historical Society and the Center of the American Experiment. Um, did a whole <laughs> oh, yes. a whole article about weaponizing history and how radical militant activists have taken over the Minnesota Historical Society, and so you know this this is this is easier than going through and dealing with that <laughs> um, on on the one hand, on the one hand the other piece that 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 you know just to get back a little bit to what Don was saying and what what you were initially saying too in terms of moving that dial and thinking about how how far we've come, you know, my grandparents were raised in boarding schools. I was raised at home. My girls are being raised at a Dakota immersion school to learn their language. And they've never been afraid to speak their language. Like, to me, that's huge. And it shows me that we are moving forward and we are moving in a direction that is good for our kids. And really, when it comes down to what is what is it that any of us are trying to do, 
you know, my, my family, when we were involved in the name restoration at Bedema Chaska, we spent a lot of time in meetings. And, you know, I remember at one point crying, wondering, like, is this any of this worth it? Does, would, would my grandparents really care about the name of this lake? And I was really tired and pregnant and had a baby. And, and it was exhausting and wondering, like, why are we doing all of this? And then I looked at my three-year-old who was super excited to go to the meeting and to share the name Badema Kaska with everyone. And I realized we're doing it for her. And it was filling her with pride. And that's what it's about. It's about legacy. And it's about what are the contributions that we make? What are the marks that we make to create change within our society and to help people to broaden their perspective so they're not just thinking within their own lane um, and learning to, again, build that empathy because it's, it's amazing to me how many people literally do not know how to think beyond themselves, which is maddening and frustrating. But that is and has historically been the problem in this country. I think it's been a huge problem in terms well, of not. Yeah, I mean, when you. When you think about the fact that we live in an individualist country, Absolutely. right, based, and then the rest of the BIPOC communities are largely collectivist, that's where that clash comes yeah. in, right? Yeah. Absolutely. The question that, that, that I want, and I know we're, we're running short on time now, um, but when I think about just the potential for really taking this to the next level, you know, I, I agree with the comments that my, my, uh, co-hosts have have shared in terms of just the abundance of richness of artists that are in our communities, you know, within the Latin, uh, Latino community, the Latinx community in particular, I think about how so many of our artists have reached national acclaim, but still are relatively unknown here in their own backyard. I think about Jimmy Longoria, Armando Gutierrez, Luis Fitch, who just got uh, his art on the U.S. postal stamp. You know, there's a series now of postage stamps that have his art on it for Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead. I think about uh, Tina Taverra and Steve Capiz. So uh, in addition to that, I, I think about also an exhibit that another one of our community members, a Latinx community members, Antonio Espinosa, is having, which is art from the inside. This is art that has uh, been um, designed and, and, and um, just incredibly illustrated by folks who are in the correctional institutions in Minnesota. I mean, it, it has been in, by inmates, right? Just beautiful, beautiful pieces. Um, but how we really, again, need to emphasize the assets that we have in our communities and not for anyone who's in any one of these correctional institutions, not be designed or defined rather by their worst mistakes, but instead seeing them holistically as the full person that they are and not the, not that monolithic version that society often defines our people. I think though also there's the, the other part of that lose is that, um, some in, in many communities, you know, you got the five artists from that community. And so whenever anybody needs anything, uh, Hmong, right, they go to these five artists. And 
uh, and then they've checked their box. And these other artists who are up and coming really don't get get the exposure. Not to say that those other uh, well-known artists are not good artists, but it's kind of it's also that usual suspects uh, thing where they're like, okay, we got to do something in the Latinx community. There's this guy that comes up first on Google, right? Or this guy that everybody knows and they don't go deeper. Yeah, no, I I see that. I definitely see that. And, you know, when I think about, when I think about what I've learned in terms of as, as a historian, what I bring to the table within this new position um, is that I, I, I cre- I've created exhibits and spent, you know, my professional c- career figuring out how do we talk about difficult histories to our kids and to, you know, as a mother, I want my kids to go to a place like Fort Snelling and come out of it not feeling defeated and come out of it feeling empowered and come out of it, even though our, our grandparents died in the concentration camp there, I want them to come out of it feeling strong. And so thinking about how do we, um, how do we recognize and pay attention to and, and, and be honest and truthful about these difficult things within our lives, but talk about it and present it in a way that highlights our strengths and highlights the future of where we're going and rather than that deficit, that victimhood deficit, I think is so incredibly important. Um, and that's something I'm really excited to focus on in terms of the visual arts with different communities and understanding that there are so many different stories to tell. And there are so many different stories that have not been told yet. Mm-hmm. To us, well, not by yourself, because I think that's an important that's an important that's thing. Right. Not gonna leave Absolutely. you hanging, you know. Because I know, I think that's all right. of us are still bristling to borrow your language, Don. A little bit about your reference to to some of the attacks that were made on you earlier about weaponizing history. <laughs> we want to talk about weaponizing history. We, <laughs> I just, I just know I have art major friends <laughs> who are rolling in their grave because a, a, a large part of European art history is about art. <laughs> you know, calling into question the things that are wrong around them. But apparently that's not part of the history um, either. So, so I just want to, I want to make. I'm calling it now. I'm calling it now. Counter stories, uh, curating an exhibit at the end. All right. Hey. 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 (laughs) And let's call it weaponizing history and talk about white supremacy. And then we really can do some things, right? Yes. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. Dr. Kate Bean, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited um, in your new position, and we, we look forward to seeing all the great things you do at the M. Absolutely. My family comes from here, and I'm not going anywhere, and I'm excited to, to help represent. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and Counter Stories producer. I'm Don Eubanks, uh, associate of Dendros Group and a uh, member of the Malak Span of Ojibwe Indians. Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions I've shared today are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Reverend Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark's AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. And I'm Dr. Kate Bean, citizen of the Flandreau Santi Sioux Dakota Nation and soon to be the executive director of the Minnesota Museum of American Art. Thanks for joining us. This program is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, 
diverse radio for Minnesota's communities with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.